You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Patty. Would you pray with me? Please be seated. Father God, just as Jason prayed, we ask that our hearts would be open to your word. We ask that any hindrance uh, to obey your word would be taken away. And Father, we ask for anyone here that has not believed in the Son of God this morning, that they would hear these words and, and you would save them, Father. So. Be with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Redeemer family. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, The angels, as we read in the Advent, the angels appear in Luke 2 to the shepherds, and they announce, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So from the very beginning... Uh, the incarnation of Christ has brought joy to the earth. And we'll take a look at that this morning by way of John 16, 16 through 24. We just read that, but please be turning there. John 16, 16 through 24. As you're turning there's, there, there's a couple of things that we should clarify. As we seek to understand the promise of joy in the Bible and thereby its function in our daily lives. First, the message of the Bible, and thereby the message this morning, that of joy is exclusive to the believer. This joy that we'll discuss today is like that of the psalmist in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
This joy is comprehensive, and it's only found in Christ, in your presence, the psalmist says. Now, this is not meant to discount that what joy exists here on earth, but the specific joy that we'll discuss this morning is different. It's distinct, it's deeper, and it surpasses everything else. Now, if you're joining us today and you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you haven't believed on him for eternal life, don't think that this text doesn't have something specific and exclusive for you as well. Today we'll examine God's word in John 16, and he is going to make plain his offer to you that pure, abiding, everlasting joy is found in him and is available to you if you would repent and believe in the Son of God. Second thing this morning that we'll do, or any morning that we've done here in this series, uh, what we're not doing is redefining these words of hope, of peace, joy, or love. In fact, what we're doing couldn't be farther from that. Instead, what we're doing is simply aligning the ideas of these words to the promises that have been stated in the Bible. And not just the promises, but the words also, the words themselves. You see, God is the beginning of language. He's the genesis of words and phrases. This has been true since the formation of the world. Just think back to Genesis 1, 3 through 5. It begins with, and God said. Now this hadn't been done before. God hadn't said. If he had said, the word of God didn't record it for us, which seems awfully counterintuitive. Nothing was ever said, nothing spoken before. And then he goes on, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And then look what it says. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Again, nothing had been called before, nothing named. In doing this, God is exercising his rightful authority over the earth and its creation. And then he sets that as a pattern for us to follow. Then you flip over just a couple chapters to, to Genesis uh, 9, where we see the Tower of Babel. What happens there? God creates even more languages, an insurmountable number of words and phrases, so that to confuse the language, so that they may not understand one another as these people try to build a tower to heaven, and thereby he scatters them. Here's the point. These wonderful words that we have of peace, hope, joy, and love don't just have meaning in the Bible or in Christian tradition. They have their origin here. The definition, definitions of these words that we find in the Bible are the deepest and truest definitions of these words that will ever exist. And that should serve to encourage you this morning knowing that God meant peace and hope and joy and love for you as a believer. 
So this morning, as we look at John 16, we'll look at a very special section of Scripture. John 16 sets toward the end of a five-chapter block of Scripture that's often referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. And it's so-called because that's where the Last Supper occurs, where uh, Jesus and his disciples retreat uh, before he will be betrayed and taken captive. And it's in these five chapters that Jesus, his message changes, and he's giving final instructions to the eleven. Now, the instruction and teaching here, it isn't for the masses. It is for those who will build the church and for those who will encourage believers. And so we should take heed to these words. We should hear them clearly because they're meant for us. So let's pick up in chapter 16 of, or verse 16, sorry, of chapter 16 in our study of joy. Let me read that for you again. Here's how it begins. A little while and you will see me no longer. Now this is quite a way to begin a study of joy for Jesus as he's talking to his disciples. Your joy is important to me, I'm leaving. (laughs) He said this, in fact, already, so the disciples are already kind of disgruntled, if you will. Look back with me to verse 10. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. So Jesus is making it clear that, in fact, he is going away. While he says these things, though, he's aware of how heavy this is on the disciples, how confused and overwhelmed they must feel. In verse 12, he even tells them that he's holding back things because if he said them, they couldn't bear them. He continues, though, 16 through 18, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again in a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. They were lost, confused, nervous. Mind you, these 11 disciples have had their entire existence turned upside down. All they've known for the past three years is following Jesus every day, and now he's speaking riddles to them about how quickly he'll be leaving. And what's the deal with leaving, the disciples must have thought. This is to be Messiah the deliverer, the one who frees us from oppression and occupation. There's so much to be done. This is the turmoil, I believe, that they were feeling in their hearts. Let's read on. Jesus, in verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he says to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, that I... What I meant by saying a little while and you will see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus promises these miserable disciples in the middle of their sorrow that it would be turned to joy. But in that promise, we can't skip the fact that sorrow here precedes 
joy. Now, sorrow is in no short supply, is it? In just the past few weeks, Heather and I's best friends in New York went into premature labor at 18 weeks, and the twins that were delivered upon their delivery passed away immediately. Last Friday, a coworker of mine who had a great career, a wonderful wife, grown children, committed suicide. The world and our lives are full of deep and grievous sorrow. And sorrow is not coming to an end in Jesus' announcement here. It's not coming to an end with this promise of joy. Christian joy does not mean the end of sorrow. Jesus never says anything like that, does he? Just flip back with me to chapter 15, verse 18. He says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, remember, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep, also keep yours. Jesus is not abolishing sorrow. He's establishing joy. And Jesus cares about your joy. Think again about these disciples whom Jesus is talking to. Young men who have been confused certainly all evening about what Jesus is saying that he's leaving them. And it is, as if that's not enough, he's also telling them that the world where he'll be leaving them behind will hate them, will persecute them, and will kill them, he says in 16 verse 2. So here's the point. Joy and sorrow often go together, like salt and pepper, or peanut butter and jelly, or Minnesota and unfulfilled sports expectations. Jesus gives two reasons, though, two ointments to soothe this burning sorrow. First, he says, a little while. Only a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me. Like a shot in the arm to fend off a multitude of illnesses. It pricks and it stings, but it's only for a little while. Sorrow will continue to nip at your heels. It will lurk at your door, but it's only for a little while. And this should give us much hope. But the second ointment is the one that truly restores the soul. He says your sorrow will be turned to joy. Jesus knew the turmoil in the minds and the hearts of the disciples just as he does ours. And he puts all of this at ease by saying your sorrow will turn to joy. Now, God hasn't all of a sudden begun caring about his people in this way just when Jesus shows up, but it's important that Jesus is here. So let's look back at a promise of joy in the Old Testament. 
In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 13, Jeremiah writes this, Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance. Obviously not Baptists. Uh, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for sorrow. Then later in that same chapter in verse 33 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The promise of joy in the Bible has always and will always begin with Christ. The gladness that God will mine out of the depths of the sorrow is the new covenant. That one day Christ would come, that he will make a way for the law to be within his people. That he would write it on their hearts. Christians, Jesus is for your joy. And knowing that, we should not interpret sorrow as merely opposite to joy, but also often as a prerequisite for it. Unsurprisingly, Jesus has the best way of explaining this for us. Let's read John 16:21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. In this verse, he gives us an example of a pregnant woman enduring the agony of labor. This anguish, not only that of delivery, but also nine months of pregnancy that preceded it, complete with strange changes to a woman's body and swollen ankles and a host of other things. This anguish is not abolished, but it's forgotten. Why? Why is this sorrow so quickly ushered out? Look what it says, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And just to prove how this sorrow and affliction are quickly forgotten, look around. Look around at how many mothers, not just of one child, but of multiple children, sit here, sit here today. These are veritable conquerors of pain and agony, but they continue to endure pregnancy, labor, because of the joy that follows when one of our children is born to us. So Jesus is for your joy. He'll turn your sorrow into joy. But if that's all we take away from these first six verses, then we've missed something. Turn back with me to Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, 26, 31 through 39. <clears throat> Matthew 26, 31 through 39. A few verses here, but I'm going to read them for you says this, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, speaking as to his disciples. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me from me nevertheless not as I will but as you will this picture in John 16 of Jesus caring so tenderly for his disciples in the upper room and he this picture of him encouraging them that their joy is so close is himself mere hours away from being publicly betrayed and beginning his march toward the cross. He already knows of the trial and the sorrow that he must suffer when he's speaking to his disciples in this passage. In fact, he's already told the disciples that they will all fall away, that one of his closest earthly friends, Peter, would deny him three times before morning comes. It's not to mention what's really weighing on his mind. That so very soon he would bear the weight of sin for his people and endure the wrath of his father so he could pay the people's debt. In a time where Jesus should have been and had every right to be sorrowful himself, he is more concerned about the well-being and the joy of his disciples. Faced with the greatest trial that any human will ever endure by a million times. And he's reassuring his disciples that this trial, for a little while, will soon be turned into joy. When Paul attempts to describe the selflessness of Jesus, in a letter to the Philippians, he says this, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, as he cares for his disciples, is not only our encouragement, but also our example. Now, we've been talking thus far about how Jesus has, uh, is for your joy as a believer, how he'll turn your sorrow into joy. But there's more good news. Let's read John 16, 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus promises his disciples here, and the promise is good for us today, that no one will take their joy from them. He also tells them that he'll see them again and that this will cause their hearts to rejoice. 
He's been saying this all along, hasn't he? A little while and you'll see me. In essence, the presence of Christ will allow the disciples to rejoice. But it will also ensure that no one will take their joy from them, that their joy is secure. Now, Jesus has talked about the security of his people many times in the book of John. Let's look at a couple of those. John 6, 37, all that the Father has given me, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 10, 28, and 29, I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Then in John 14, verses 16 through 19, And I will ask the Father, this is Jesus again, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. This phrase, which is a little while, can be a bit confusing. At first glance, you'd think it just speaks of Jesus' resurrection. That in a very little while, he says to the disciples, in three days you'll see me again. But that would beg the question of, of how the, their joy then would be so persistent, so secure. Listen to what John MacArthur says here. Jesus was referring to his ascension. You will no longer see me. And the coming of the Holy Spirit, you will see me. In this, Jesus emphatically claims that he and the Spirit are one. Christ dwells in the believers through the Holy Spirit. And it is in that sense that they see him. You see, Jesus rises to conquer death. But then he ascends to take his throne and sends the one who will make the Spirit of God not only be with them as Jesus stands in front of them, but that the Spirit of God would be in them. The endurance of your joy rests in the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples that it will be better for them if he leaves so that the Spirit can come. And that with the gift of the Spirit, they will not be left as orphans, but they will be helped forever. Jesus and the Spirit are one. And with the indwelling Holy Spirit, your joy will endure. Jesus' statement about our joy in verse 22 doesn't only speak about the endurance of our joy, but its security that no one will take it from you. Think back to those verses we read in John of security. Jesus says, I will never let them go. Then he says, my father, who is greater than I, no one will snatch them out of his hand. And finally, he says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper and he will be with you forever. Christian, you should never doubt 
God's desire for your joy. The joy of the Christian and the Bible is secured through every person of the Trinity. By the miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can say with the psalmist that in your presence is fullness of joy. In God's perseverance of his people and their salvation, our joy rings loud and clear with Peter that Jesus has caused us to be born again, that our inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's kept for you, that it's being guarded by God's power so that we rejoice. Your joy is secure. And this is very, very good news, brothers and sisters. It's good news because we live in a fallen world. And there's one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil would like nothing more than to steal your joy and pull you away from the communion with Jesus. Now, the devil is a liar. He's a deceiver, but he is no fool. Certainly, the devil can use pain and other things to ruin our communion with Christ and thus our joy, but he will not always do that. Often, his substitution will be happiness, worldly happiness in temporal things like gifts you give or you receive, the way that you think people see you, or the thousands of these happiness and contentment idols that we build up for ourselves. His purpose behind this happiness distraction is always your destruction. It's like that uh, scene from the great cinematic achievement, The Incredibles. If you haven't seen it, why? But if you haven't seen it, there's Mr. Incredible. He's this superhero, Superman type um, who possesses great strength. And there's a scene in the movie where Mr. Incredible is, he's wanting to penetrate the evil lair of the villain. And he comes to this long hallway, and as he begins to make his way down the hallway to the door at the end, all of a sudden these cannons appear on either side. But these cannons aren't firing cannonballs. They're firing these strange balls that they hit you and stick to you, and then they inflate quickly. Once Mr. Incredible gets hit with enough of these, he collapses, they engulf him, and I won't say any more as to not ruin the movie. But these sticky, growing spheres seem just like the worldly happiness that the devil will use to displace our joy. The only difference is that we may not notice it. We don't notice it, and then all of a sudden, with all of these idols that we've stacked up for ourselves, all of a sudden we're consumed with happiness that is only for a moment. Temporal happiness, and all of a sudden they engulf us and our joy is extinguished. Your joy is most secure when you're free from all of those hindrances 
that would keep you away from one thing, and that's abiding deeply in Christ. This is the center of your joy. Your joy is wrapped up in the care of a loving Savior who desires you not to be in sorrow and wants you to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that your salvation and thereby your communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will bring you everlasting, secure joy. And that brings us to our last two verses, verses 23 and 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Now Jesus is speaking plainly here, stating that when he goes away, in fact, they won't be able to ask him any questions. But he goes on to say two things. Ask, and it will be given to you, that your joy may be made full. First, he says, ask, and it will be given to you. Now, there's an important modifier that he states, in my name. Ask, and it will be given to you, in my name. Now, what does this mean? I think it's helpful to probably think about what it means to be in my name, to ask something in the name of Christ. This statement brings along an authorization or uh, an authority or even for the reason of. Think of the song, Stop in the Name of Love. The command is stop under the authority of love. It's a terrible example, but it helps me understand it. We know and we want to know better Jesus every day. We want him to be our example. We want to be more like him. That is why this statement is true. If we ask anything that is in line with the character and the mind of Christ, it will be given to us. Given to us. What should we ask for then? And what will make this last statement true that your joy would be made full? For that, we'll look back to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christ's desire is that that we would follow him, that we would emulate him, specifically by keeping his commandments. His obedience here on earth allowed the union between him and the Father to be one of abiding love, and that's what he desires for us. And these things, these commandments that Jesus has laid out before us, they are for your joy. Look at how Jesus says it, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. 
For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Our union and communion with Christ is the center of our joy. That's why the joy that we've been discussing all morning is for the believer because it's only found in Christ. And now the Holy Spirit has been given to us that we could walk with him each day. And as we walk with him each day, we ought to walk in obedience, in obedience to the commands of God. These commands, they're not burdensome, but they're for your good. They're for your joy. They will preserve your joy. Unfortunately, this is where we find the beginning of sin in our lives. We think that oh, we could maybe find some more joy somewhere else outside of God's good plan. This is what Jesus is asking of us, that we would follow him in obedience and that we would pray for his help to do so so that as Christians our joy may be made full, that we would be joyful. If sin is sorrowing you this morning, repent. Remember, I said earlier that joy is exclusive for the believer, but this passage is not. If you've never repented of your sin, and you've never believed on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please come talk to me afterwards. Find an elder. Find someone sitting around you and talk to them about Jesus. If you are a believer and your sin is in the way of your joy by not obeying the commands of Jesus, repent. And guess what? Your sorrow will be turned into joy. And then pray for God's help. Pray for his help that he would help you obey. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Yes, beloved, he can at this moment turn your sorrows into joys. If you have a great lump of sorrow, you will have a great lump of joy. He turns it all into joy. One touch of his finger can turn granite stones into gold. Bring them to his feet. Ask him to do it, and you shall be rich. The incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, this is truly good news of great joy for us this morning. The good news about your joy is that in Christ Jesus, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Your joy is secure and that your joy will be made full. We discussed also that Jesus is our selfless example and he's our encouragement that we should be like him in obedience through God's good design and that, that would be fulfilled in our lives. But Christ is the center of our joy and our communion with him through the Holy Spirit can never be taken from us. That's why I love the song that we'll sing at the end of today's service called Christ is All. I found a treasure that can't be taken. 
found a well that won't run dry. O worldly pleasure, be now forsaken. Behold, what love of life is mine. And in the trial, when storms are raging, though tears may fall, my soul will rise, for there's a peace that is mine unchanging. There's a joy that never dies. When life is passing, strength fading, I'll see the one that I adore. Let this world vanish, oh, give me Jesus, my great desire, my true reward, Christ is all. 